Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, Costas Halabrezos interviews Her Honor, Nan Francis. can't apply for the job of Lieutenant Governor of your province. You won't find it posted on CareerBeacon or Indeed.com or Kijiji. Lieutenant Governors are appointed by the Prime Minister in a manner that's mysterious even to those who are offered the position. What path might lead you to receiving that call from the PMO? Well, there's no single path, but thanks to a new memoir by the Honourable May Ann Francis, the 31st Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia, we know the singular path which she trod from the Whitney Pier area of Sydney through Halifax, New York, Ontario, and back to Halifax again before receiving that fateful call in 2006. Her memoir is entitled An Honourable Life, and May Ann Francis has joined us. Welcome to Book Me. Thank you very much. Not many Canadians have a coat of arms, but of course you do. It has many elements, but I want to ask you about a few and what clues they give to your life and your values. First, the motto at the bottom, not in the traditional Latin, but in Spanish. Conocimiento, veridad, amor y justicia. Why Spanish? You impress me with, 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 your, with your Spanish because I don't speak Spanish, even though my heritage is Cuban. And I'm not happy that I do not speak it, but it's Spanish because my dad was born in Cuba. And unfortunately, he did not speak to us as children um, in Spanish. And I think his reason for that was because we were living in Cape Breton, in Sydney, in Whitney Pier, and he probably did not see the need for us to read or speak Spanish. And I believe my mother had an influence on that as well. So what that told me is he had a short vision about that because that would have been very helpful to us um, going into the future. And I did take Spanish um, when I got to university, but you know it's a different story when you're when you're forced to study Spanish. But I I, I love the language, and unfortunately, every time we would go to New York to visit our family who was Spanish, um, they're upset because my sister and I could not speak the language, and so they would get upset with my father. And he still didn't <laughs> didn't back away. But as he got older and we got older, he expressed regret. But it was too late by that, you know, <laughs> to be fluent in it. So it's unfortunate, yeah. Well, as I mentioned, there are lots of elements in, in the coat of arms. I'm just going to ask you about one more, and that's at the crest, a cat, not any cat, but a ragdoll cat holding a torch. My darling cat, Angel, um, who lived in government house with me for, for the short time I was in there. And she was just a very special cat and um, died a little bit too uh, prematurely for my sake anyway. And um, the, the torch that the cat is, that she's holding is um, indicative of the, um, um, the graduate studies that I did at New York University. So Angel is holding the torch. And I put Angel on top because, as I said, Angel is very special to me, but also her name, Angel, which uh, also signifies my faith in many respects of angels. And also on the, on the crest, you'll see there's cross 
to cross there. One is the faith that I grew up in, African Orthodox, and the other is a cross um, where my faith now is an Anglican. So, you know, it has elements of my faith and my love of cats and my respect for my dad's heritage. And so, yeah, so it tells a little story. You forgot there's also um, Cape Breton in there too. Like there's absolutely cross there. <laughs> yeah, so, there are the eagle so heads. Yes, absolutely. So try, trying to tell the story of it. And some crossed areas. sugar canes. Sugar cane, West Indian, because my mom was from Antigua. And in both Antigua and Cuba, sugar cane was something that uh, was prevalent, right? Could you read to us from your memoir? Absolutely. I'd love to. My goodness. I disconnected the prime minister's office. They wanted to speak to you, said my executive assistant, Michael Noonan. Laughing, I said, someone is playing tricks on you. No, I'm serious, he said, sounding panicky. I have to call them back. Little did I know that phone call would change forever, not only the course of my life, but the history of Nova Scotia. Who would have thought or imagined that I, a black woman, born of immigrant parents and raised in a province with a history of negative race relations and racial segregation, would be receiving a call from the Prime Minister of Canada asking me to accept a position that would prove to be a great blessing, a very rewarding experience, even though there were times it was challenging. For a moment, I could not speak. I was sitting across from the Prime Minister of our beautiful country, Canada, and he had just asked me to be the 31st Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. I steered in disbelief while Prime Minister Stephen Harper continued to speak. All I could think about were my parents and all those warriors who fought for equality and justice for black people. There I was, a black woman from humble beginnings, sitting with the Prime Minister who had selected me to be his vice-regal representative. Not only was I surprised, I was also gripped with fear. I would be the first black person to achieve this high honor in Nova Scotia. Would the wider community accept me? I knew the expectation and the challenge in taking on such a role were enormous. I had 48 hours to respond. I could not tell anyone. I felt alone. I was well aware that regardless of my answer, my life would be impacted forever. Did I want to throw away this opportunity? After all, my parents taught me to walk proud, and as long as I had my education, I could do anything. Did I want my life to become an open book, as it probably would if I accepted the honor? I had so many questions and no answers. My inner voice said, Fear should not stop you. When a door opens, it opens for a reason. I knew what I had to do to arrive at my answer. I spoke to someone I could trust. And that person was? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me. Blessed art thou amongst women. And God. When you graduated from high school and decided to become an x-ray technician, 
a nun named Mother St. Bernard prophesied that May Ann Francis wasn't going to stop there. What do you think she saw in you that maybe you didn't even see at that time? I really don't know. And I've, I've been trying to think about that for years because I just remember sitting in this, in this the seat at the desk and she was going up and down the aisle asking everybody what did they want to be. And when she got to me and I told her and she said, you're not going to stay like that and moved on. <laughs> and I didn't know whether to feel badly <laughs> or to feel good. But I knew the way she said it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a bad thing. But at the same time, it was like her saying, no, no, you're going further than that. What she saw, I don't know. I mean, I always worked hard and studied hard, but it's the way she said it and she had her hand on her hip. <laughs> I can still see her face. Mother St. Bernard, yeah. Now, after graduation from St. Mary's University, you secured a position with the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission in 1973. Can you recall some of the cases you observed being pursued at that time and how that influenced you? Well, I would say the the most prominent of cases were trying to find a place to live. Um, and what the commission did at the time, we always ran these test cases. Um, we had people who um, would volunteer to be testers um, from the white population. Um, they would, you know, go, or we would send a black person first to go and apply for uh, an apartment someplace and they'd be told it's gone. And even though you had just called, um, you get there and say, oh, somebody else just called and so we, we gave it to them. Then you'd have the, the white volunteers do the same procedure, get there and be offered the apartment. So, you know, so that was foremost. And then the other thing was also employment. And George McCurdy, um, who was the um, the CEO at that time, he was um, very, very um, high up on, on affirmative action. And so he worked very hard to get people to sign on to affirmative action. And, and some of the grocery stores did. And so I would say that at the time, it was mostly employment and where to live. And there was a lot of education going on at that time as well, but it was very difficult during that time because it was always the denial um, that racism did exist or sexism or racism against um, you know someone's religion or whatever. But it was um, he was a very very strong leader in terms of um, dealing with equity, and he wasn't afraid. He was very 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 um, out there um, in terms of um, speaking about how racism was impacting this province. At the same time, in the early 70s, as a young woman, you were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. How has that affected your life? Well, when the, when the diagnosis first happened, it was, um, it, it, depending on which doctors I was with, because the doctors here basically said, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a, a good outcome. And so then when I moved to the States and a doctor confirmed it again. Then when I moved to New York, because the first part of the States was Philadelphia, then when I went to New York, the doctor there was a little bit more um, optimistic and said, you know, um, I think that you will be okay, but you are going to continue to lose, you know, peripheral vision and depth and so forth. But I think your central will be, will stay all right. And so New York University is where the new, I should say New York University Hospital. So that's where I kept going for follow-ups. And they were just absolutely wonderful. And I, they saw me as a different case because um, people who were diagnosed about the same time as I was lost their eyesight. 
like, you know, that just closed in on them. And they only had such a narrow vision, they couldn't see anything. But they were amazed that my central vision was so strong. And when you have retinitis pigmentosa, you're open to other things as, as you get older. Um, and like glaucoma is one of them. So now I have glaucoma. Um, but I do see differences now happening. Um, and like I'm tripping over things. And, you know, so I have to now do more scouting than I did before. So no, but you, you, as Lieutenant Governor, of course, I'm going to leap ahead a bit. Mm -hmm. you, you were regularly in, in receptions with many, many people, maybe people approaching approaching you from the side? What, what strategies did you develop to, to deal with that? The strategies were my aide-de-camps. <laughs> my aide-de-camps, they, they, of course, had to know um, about, these, about my eye condition and what they could do to really help us to, um, not to cover it up, but to act in a way that um, it, everything was fine. So in terms of handshaking, well, in terms of lieutenant governors, you're the one to extend your hands first, right? And then in terms of dark rooms, um, the request was always the room must not be dark when a lieutenant governor is walking in because that's one of the main characteristics of darkness. You just can't see in the rooms. And the aide-de-coms were always ahead of me and they would make sure everything is out of the way and they would be pointing to the floor or whatever. So we had our strategy for, for that, which worked out extremely well, you know, especially when it was dark. And I, when I say dark, I mean kind of a dim light and it couldn't get any lighter. Um, so the so I would say our strategy was was our was the aide de camps, and so I miss them now because <laughs> <laughs> light it up. <laughs> yeah, and you did notice that microphone cable there. Right? We'll watch that. Oh later. yes, yeah. Well, it's interesting because people who know, like, if there's a, they'll say, "Man, there's a wire here," you know. So it's it's really great. People are just very sensitive, and they know. Mm -hmm. now, you did move to New York, where your sister Isabel and her husband lived, mm -hmm. uh, as well as some of the members of your your father's family, the the Cuban side were there, but, but you did lots of things. You, you did, based on your experience, uh, get a job as an x-ray technician. Uh, you also sold subscriptions to TV Guide, and you studied to become a paralegal, worked with a Wall Street firm. What was that period like for a young woman from Whitney Pier in New York in the mid-70s? Well, you know, it was very interesting because, <laughs> you know, I graduated from St. Mary's University, and it was like people were saying, where did you get this degree from? St. Mary's University. Where's that? Nova Scotia. Well, where's Nova Scotia? So you went through all of that. And so I knew immediately that I would have to get a certificate or a degree from an American university before I was hired anywhere. So there wasn't any time for a degree. So I said, let me see what's out there that people will hire you for. So paralegal was my choice. And I um, went to Long Island University and graduated with a paralegal certificate. So I knew that I would be able to get a job eventually as a paralegal. And But having my x-ray technology um, course behind me and my study, and I even had my um, registration in America because there was reciprocity with, with New York. And so that's what really kept me going. I was able to get um, some part-time work as an x-ray technician. And I volunteered at one of the hospitals in New York. And that's when a doctor was talking. He said, oh, when did, you, when did we hire you? And I said, I'm not 
I'm just volunteering. He just sort of stepped back. You don't like money? <laughs> so then he's the one that got me employment in clinics that he was reading um, x-rays for. So it was it was a wonderful experience. I, I love New York. Um, I, I really feel that I grew a lot, um, whether it was working on Wall Street, selling TV guide, um, working in a store. I used to do retail as well. And I loved retail because you got clothing for cheap yeah and i <laughs> like oh yeah it was really great good good discount so it was great and you know so i learned so much um living in the states uh, working at the district attorney's office um it in was brooklyn. just yeah in brooklyn and brooklyn. dealing with some landmark cases definitely definitely and it was um it was it would see all of these things build your build your your personality it builds your stamina um because not everything is easy and I just truly felt um, blessed to be able to work at the district attorney's office, New York City Corporation Council's office, sell TV guys, work on Wall Street, work in Midtown, Manhattan, watch um, movie stars walk by you as you're sitting there sipping coffee or whatever. It's, it was just great. Yeah, it was good. So after 16 years, what brought you back to Nova Scotia? Well, a friend reached out to my sister and said, you know, your sister should be back in Nova Scotia because she has a lot to contribute. My sister said, good luck. <laughs> you know, I convinced her to come back. And I told my sister, I said, no, because I'm applying to do my master's uh, uh, again, you know, and then from there I'm going to do a PhD. And she said, well, I'm just letting you know. And so anyway, she called and she said, look, this woman is still calling. I think you need to at least speak to her because she said there's a position at Dalhousie that I should apply for. And I said, but I like New York. I'm not ready to come back to Sydney or come back to Halifax. And if I come back, I really want to come back with as a as a deputy head or deputy minister or a lieutenant governor. I was joking, right? So anyway, uh, <laughs> I did say that to her. So anyway, my sister said, well, just let her talk to you. So she did. And um, I said, all right, you can you can go ahead, give my name to, to Dalhousie, and uh, we'll go from there. And I still wasn't convinced that I would go or whatever. So when Dal called me, they said, we just want to know how serious you are because, you know, they would have to fly me in. You know, they didn't want to waste time, which I don't blame them, right? So I said, no, I'm... I'm I'm going to be honest. Um, I'm I'm still on two minds here, but I said I leave that to you. I will come, and I come in good faith. So they questioned me on the phone, and then they said we really would like to bring you in. So the rest is history. Now, what about your experience of returning to Nova Scotia, though? Well, the first after, time after that period, yeah, in New the York. first time back was a state of shock because remember I'm in New York City. And there was just so much um, progress there in terms of um, diversity, in terms of, you know, particular jobs and everything was going on. It was so much fun. It was great. And I came back and I said, I must have been crazy because I kept thinking everything kept pace. And obviously it did not, you know, in terms of diversity, et cetera. And um, so I was only here, I guess, what about three or four years, I guess, before I received a call for a position in Ontario. And I said, well, I may as well go and grab that. And so I went on the interview for that, was very successful. And I think everything works out for, for a good reason, because being in Ontario got me used to being back in Canada. 
And I think that was important because being in Ontario for a while, and then I received another call from a, a headhunter about a position here in Nova Scotia, and that was the head of the Human Rights Commission. So then I'm back again, and the rest again, you know what happened after coming back. Mm -hmm. Now, the uh, job in Ontario was uh, Assistant Deputy Minister in the Ontario Women's Directorate and the periods of the early 90s, and you cite it in your memoir as one of the most challenging periods in your life, and you cite the hostility you experienced working, ironically, in an all-female environment. What was going on? It was it was probably a very difficult part to write about in the book because it was it brought back to memories I don't want to think about. Um, I fa I'm sure if anybody's reading that, book um, who was at the at the um, director at the time was there, oh, I don't think it's was that way. Well, it was. And I feel it was that way because I was the first black woman to head the agency up. And it was during a time where, um, you know, like racism and sexism was alive and well, where it was a woman feeling that way or a man feeling that way, it was there. So it was this um, fair in some respects about well, what is this black woman going to do? Is she going to come in and fire all of us white women who are here and hire all black women? Um, or is she truly a feminist? She doesn't look like one. You know, you know these are some of the things that you I heard were whispering around. Like my executive assistant was was a white woman and she was absolutely wonderful, just a great woman. She was totally different. And then we had um, other um, black um, people in there who were all very supportive of me, but they knew what was going on because they were right down and could hear these things. So I just found it difficult, but I was determined. I was not given up. Um, you know, I would go home and count to 10 and ask God, give me strength because I'm not backing away from it. But at the same time, it was, it was very, I found it difficult. But the, the minister at the time when I got the job, she was absolutely great. And so that, that helped too. And her staff were all, all good. But I, I don't know if, if um, these were these women's personalities or it was just at the time and place um, when this all happened. You know, so I mean, I certainly don't hold anything against anyone. For me, it just made me a stronger person. When you came back to Nova Scotia and became uh, director and CEO of the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission in, in 1999, uh, you gave an interesting speech, and you print part of it in your memoir, to a business group in, in which you kind of tackled the notion out there in the in the private sector of human rights as being just more government red tape what did you say to persuade them to think differently about human rights in the workplace um that's an interesting question but in terms of when i make speeches i try not to um put blame on anybody what i'd like to do is to say let's all open our minds to reality, okay? And that's not to say that you're the blame for this and you're the blame for that. We have to all accept we've been socialized differently, okay? And we're educated differently in terms of um, culture, in terms of looking at other people and everything else, whether it's right or wrong. Um, that is up to us as individuals to take a good look at ourselves and be honest. But you can look around. You can look around and say, why is it that on the somebody reading the news for various stations, we don't see that much color. 
Why is it when we sit around a, a, a table for a board, for boards, regardless of where that is, we don't see anybody of color, and only until recently then we start seeing women. So we have to ask those questions, what is it and how come? Especially when you have indigenous populations here, um, you have black population, yeah, and now you even have more um, people coming in who are brown and more people coming in from different other places who are black and so forth. But way back then, I think that's what I was doing was trying to educate and people to open your eyes. It's not business as usual. It can be. If you want a, a country or a province or a community to grow, then you have to accept the reality that there's going to be changes in who the human beings are that you are going to have to look at. Because remember, we're not staying at the same age forever. As we get older, there's another group that's coming, and we better get used to um, the different cultures, the different orientations, the different religions. And how do we work with, with, with people like that? Because they're very educated, but we have stereo, stereotypes in our heads. And we have to look at ourselves if we are going to go forward in a positive way. Do you want to grow the economy? Then you have to use everybody. When you were at a party at the, the turn of the millennium, you wrote something which would come back to surprise you, you say, years later. Tell us about that. <laughs> um, two friends, um, Bernie and Michael, um, they had a New Year's Eve party. And at the party for the turn of the millennial, they said, I want everybody to write down what their hope is for the next um, 10 years or so. And he said, I would seal everything in an envelope and I'll give it back to you in nine years time. Right. So I remember sitting there and writing and wrote A and B. Okay. And I never thought about it again until I was living in government house and um, Bernie and Michael came over to, to visit and they said, here's what you wrote. And so they handed me the envelopes. I opened it up and I sat down and I laughed. And, and then I said, no, this isn't funny. This is different. So Bernie said, well, what are you talking about? And I handed it to him. He read it. He said, oh my gosh. I wrote, I don't have the exact words now, but it's in the book. It says, um, you know, I want to see a, a, a world where there's love and understanding and togetherness and so forth. And then I said something to the effect that, and when I am lieutenant governor, I will endeavor. So the, the key words there is when I am lieutenant governor. To be quite frank with you, I'm not so sure I remember writing that. <laughs> you know, obviously you were partying I, like it was uh, yeah, I, you know, So, time. you know, there it was. And so then we all just sort of sat there very quietly. And I remember when I was telling it to another friend and they said, do, 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 da, 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 da. You know, so I said, why are you singing like that? Well, he said, do, 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 do. <laughs> So anyway, uh, yeah. the the late activist Rocky Jones mm. was your guest once, and he asked you if you had encountered racism in your position of let, lieutenant governor. And you say in the memoir you didn't answer him directly. Can you answer that question for us now? Uh, my book talks about some of my experiences while being lieutenant governor, but I also say in the book that the experiences. Um, um, were negated because of the way the people treated me and when I went into 
communities and rural communities. It was just such feeling of respect and love and understanding. And I, that gave me the, um, I guess it gave me the comfort level to push the other things that I was experiencing way back so that I don't, so those things weren't going to um, have an impact on how I react to people. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I felt um, I was there for the people. Um, I was the vice regal representative and it was for, and the people were there and I felt that I owed them also respect and them respect me. So if I were to con were to take everything that I experienced that was negative as lieutenant governor, I would not have been able to be um, as effective as a lieutenant governor. I was representing the queen. So I had to make sure that that's what I was doing, representing the queen and there to serve the people. And that's what I did. And yeah. But for the better part mm -hmm. of, of three years, you did not have access no. to the, the residence of the lieutenant governor. That was the nightmare years. The first couple of years were the nightmare years, even though nobody would suspect they were nightmares, but I, they were for me. Um, and for staff, I would think in many ways because um, of the extra burden that, that presented. So you were still I, living in your condo. In my condo. And, and you had an I office. I love my condo, but it was yeah, an office in, in the- In a high rise. Yeah. In the, down here at- um, In the Maritime, Maritime Center. Center. In mm -hmm. Halifax. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. So, what what were quite some of challenge. the practical examples of how that impeded your work? Well, when I went to live in government house, okay, I saw how difficult my job was living in my condo. So, let's just say I had four or five events in one day. So, go to center, maritime center, run back home, change my clothes, go to the event. Then back to um, back to my house again. Change my clothes, you know. Run to the next place where it's being held or whatever. So it was back and forth, and it made it also difficult, not just for the driver for the aide de camps because there was no parking space down at at the at the center here. Um, staff had to find locations, proper venues to have things. So it was this back and forth. And when you're in government house, all you do is come downstairs. <laughs> You know, and so you don't have this running up and down. So that piece was very difficult. The other part was um, food, because at Government House there's um, there's a there's a chef there all twenty four twenty four you know hours. Well, not at night unless there's an event going on. But there's there's a chef there. So there I was. You know, I had to hire somebody to deliver food to the condo and. I brown bag it when I had to go down to the center. So those are the type of things that, that were difficult and getting on elevators with with um, the public who were uncomfortable, especially if an aide de comp was with me. They didn't know, well, should we look at her? Should we keep her head down? Should we get on the elevator with her? We're not going to stop them. That's a public elevator. I'm certainly not going to say you can't get on. No, I'm saying they're going to their, their office, right? Mm -hmm. And they had every right to get on the elevator, but you can see everybody was uncomfortable. <laughs> no. well, the, things so didn't hard. really change. I mean, the, this renovation was dragging on, was missing deadlines and missing deadlines. It didn't seem to change until there was a change of government. Right. That's, yeah. that's the appearance. And when I had a chat with um, um, Daryl Dexter, former, prime, former premier, and when he told me, uh, what he said was that 
he was not going to have his government have that on their on their list of um you know their history that they kept this woman out of out of the house like the the government um didn't really work that hard to make sure that the first black person um as lieutenant governor was only in the house 3 months or was only in the house zero didn't get in at all so he was determined to do it as as a leader he was determined you were going to be in that house and, and he was. stepped on the gas that's right while you were serving as lieutenant governor, you had a, a what you say, a, a difficult meeting with a politician and a bureaucrat one day, which led you to write in your journal, I only ask God to give me the wisdom and health to write my story when this is all over. What happened in that meeting? Disrespect, um, speaking in a way that was just very, very rude to the vice regal representative. And I remember the person who was with me uh, when we left the office, they looked at me and said, I cannot believe what just happened. It's just disrespectful. I don't care if you're the vice regal representative. I can talk to you in a way I want. That attitude. But yeah. you've survived all that and worse. Survived all of it. Of survived all of it. Yes, um, it was important to do that. Um, I'm not saying that I didn't go home and sit and and just feel very miserable and sad. But I never allowed my spirit to be broken because if my spirit was broken, you would have known. I would not have had the energy or the enthusiasm to to move forward and to please the people. To me, that's what it was all about. I had to please the people. And I talk about a, a area where I went to um, for a, a luncheon, I think, believe it was, and into the rural community, and they sprinkled petals on the floor. It was just so beautiful. And the food was great, and everybody was wonderful. And I just love going into the communities because it was so lovely. And, you know, and it might have been their first time that they've had somebody black come into their community, but it was always respectful and happy and, and genuine. I felt it was genuine. And so I just loved going into the various communities. And even up to today, I would, you know, not today exactly right now, but run into people who, you know, I meet thousands of people who say, oh, you came into our community. We were so happy. They'll say it now too, you know, and it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you for coming good. in to be interviewed on Book Me. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me in. Really appreciate it. Her Honor Mayanne Francis was the 31st Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. Her memoir, An Honorable Life, is published by Nimbus. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca. That's bookmepodcast.ca. Or just pop Book Me with an exclamation mark in your search engine. If you've enjoyed this podcast and others in our series, be sure to go to iTunes and rate us and review us. We'd love that. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox does an honorable job of recording and editing this podcast. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Everybody.